Have you ever had someone that you loved, cared for, and you did everything that you knew in your power to try to communicate to them that you cared about them, that you loved them, that they were so important to you, and you just yearn for them to respond back to you and say, hey, I appreciate that, and I love you back. Now, I know some of my young men are sitting here right now saying, Pastor, that's the exact problem that I've got. I can't get her to say that back to me. But have you ever been in that kind of a situation where you have just, you know, you looked at someone or maybe it's a group and you've tried to pour your heart out to them and share your life with them and the dreams, etc. And you just yearn for them to love you back after you have expressed so much love in their direction. Well, that is exactly where God was with his people as they were getting ready to enter into the promised land. And he gathered his people together to communicate to them one more time his love for them, but to say, hey, I want you to love me back. And you and I, as we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and serve him, we talk so much about how God loves us and how he gave his son for us, and he loves us tremendously. But when do we love him back? When we have last said to Jesus, Jesus, I love you, and I want to serve you, and I want to walk with you. Jesus, I appreciate what you have done for me. Well, we're going to look this morning at the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn there. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, where we will see where God is asking his people to love him back because he has been loving on them for 40 plus years. And as you turn there, I'm beginning a new series of messages today entitled Favorite Verses, Eternal Truths, and they're printed on the front of your bulletin. And for the next number of weeks, we're going to look at different verses throughout the flow of Scripture that are verses that usually come up as favorites, but at the same time, they are eternal truths. And if we can get our, wrap our minds and our hearts around these verses, they will do a lot to help us grow in our walk with the Lord. My sermon outline, as always, is printed in your bulletin, and I invite you to follow along if you will. Deuteronomy is the last of the five books of the law comprising the first five books of our Bibles, known as the Pentateuch, those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy builds on the first four books which precede it. The speaker here is Moses, who for 40 years has been leading the nation of Israel. Moses acts throughout his career as leader in many different capacities, but in this particular capacity, in the sixth chapter, he is acting as a prophet, both explaining the law of God to the people of Israel and challenging them to live in obedience to the commands that are given in those first four books and given again in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the generation of Israelites that stands before Moses as he gathers the people together is a fairly young generation. And the reason for that is that the first generation that he began to lead had complained and fussed so much that God finally said they're not going to enter into the promised land. And so that generation had to die off, and now a new younger generation stands in front of Moses, and they are poised to go across the Jordan River into the land of promise that God had promised for his people to live in and to have. Moses, again, has been leading them for 40 years. He recognizes that... 
his time as leader is just about up. There is a new leader that God has raised up in Joshua. And so these are Moses' final words to the nation of Israel. Now, the context out of which Moses will speak here is what is known as the Mosaic Covenant. And I cannot stress this enough. If you are to understand how God relates to his people in what we call the Old Testament, we have to wrap our minds around the concept of covenant. And that tends to be difficult for us in the West because we don't really operate that way. But in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, covenants were everything. And when God came to his people, he said, I want to establish a covenant with you. And God established a series of different covenants with the people of Israel through different leaders. And the particular covenant that Moses is going to speak out of here is what's called the Mosaic Covenant, so named after Moses, the leader of Israel. God came to Moses, and through Moses, he communicated to his people back in the book of Exodus, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will lead you and guide you. I will be like a father to you. However, your obligation to me is that you have to listen to me, and I want you to obey me. If you listen to me and obey me, then you will know all the blessings that I want to give you. If you blow me off and don't listen and obey me, then you're not going to know the blessings that I want to pour out upon your life. And so this was the Mosaic Covenant. Moses gathers the people on what are known as the plains of Moab. This message that he gives them is part of seven messages or sermons that he delivers over 37 days. Let's begin with verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your son's son. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, I want to reread verses 4 and 5. They are known in Judaism as the Shema, which is considered to be the very essence of the Jewish faith. Jesus repeats these words and says that they are the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Why love the Lord? It's all in his names. Notice verse 4, the names that he gives. Hero Israel, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is the name of God, Yahweh, our God, and in the Hebrew, the name God there, which is translated G-O-D, is Elohim. And so we're going to look first at those two names. Now, in the Old Testament, God gives a series of names to his people. We don't tend to pick that up in our English translations because we don't have exact equivalents from Hebrew into English. But God gives a series of names 
And here he gives the name Yahweh and the name Elohim. Now, this isn't the first time these names have come before Israel. They have been repeated over and over again in the books that precede Deuteronomy. But God is giving his name as a way of being personal. God is saying, first of all, I'm not a blob. I have not been some kind of blob or some kind of philosophy or some kind of theory hanging around in the heavens. I am a person. I have created you as persons. I am personal and I can relate to you on a personal basis. He is offering by his name, his name in friendship. When you walk up to someone and you give them your name, what are you trying to do? We are beginning to try to establish a relationship with them. We're saying, I'm a person, I have a specific name, and I want you to know that name, and I want you to be able to relate to me through it. And that is exactly what God is doing here to the nation. He is saying to this new generation, reiterating what he had said to a previous generation, let me give you two of my names, Yahweh Elohim. Relate to me. As a person. And understand how I want to relate to you. Because I'm giving you those names. Now the name Yahweh. First of all speaks of God's presence among his people. He is saying I am with you. I have been with your people. For the last 40 years. I was with your great grandfather Abraham. And I am going to be with you. As you take this next huge step. Into the promised land. Wherever you go, whatever you experience, what I want you to understand beyond any and everything else is that I am with you. My name means it indicates to you my presence. When Jesus was prophesied that he would be born, he was given the title Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has been saying it to people literally since the dawn of history, I am with you. Now, the idea of God's presence is his restless activity, his dynamic intervention, restless activity. In other words, God is not static. God doesn't just sort of stand back and watch our lives. God engages our lives. God moves into our lives. God is active all around us. We just have to discern what he's doing. And he's saying to the nation of Israel, I want you to understand that I am restlessly working among you and in you. Discern my presence. Discern what I am doing. But know that I have not taken a vacation from you. I have not walked away from you. And I will be with you as much in this new place to where you are going as where you have been. You know, so many times we hold back from the next place God wants to take us, from the next stage of life that we have to move into, because deep down we are concerned that God's not going to really be there, and He's not going to walk with us, and God says, I am Yahweh, I've been with you, and I will continue to be with you, and wherever you go and whatever life brings your way, understand that, no, it may be new, it may be strange, it may be scary, the opposition will be there, but understand that I will be with you. The name Yahweh in its very essence means to be. It's the idea that he is the essence of all reality, that he causes all things to exist. Acts chapter 17 in verse 28, the Apostle Paul preaching says, Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him, that is in Jesus, we live, we move, and we have our being. In other words, we have our purpose. We find our destiny in the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in Him. We move in Him. He is all around us. Now let's move to the next name, verse 4. He is Yahweh Elohim. The word Elohim means mighty leader. 
it sums up all of his power in his majesty. Now let me say that again. It sums up all of his power in his majesty. His power is not raw, arbitrary power that he just sort of throws around. It is a power that is summed up in the majesty of who he is. He uses his power creatively. He uses his power in love. He uses his power to build up and not to try to destroy us. Summing up his power. Now, why was this name Elohim so important? Because as the children of Israel stood, they are looking over into the promised land. They had gotten reports and they knew that over in the promised land there was going to be opposition. They knew that the first city they were going to encounter was Jericho. And Jericho did not have the doors open wide and flags flying and saying, come on in. Jericho was ready to take them on in battle. And they were greater and more powerful than Israel. He knew that there were going to be all, they knew there were going to be all kinds of problems. And he was saying, I want you to understand something. The walled cities, the opposition, the things that you're going to be facing. I will be your Elohim. I am going to go with you and lead you in the power and majesty of all that I am. And you see, what God is saying to us when he gives us this name Elohim, is he is saying to us, I want you to understand that wherever I call you, wherever I lead you, whatever you face, whatever opposition comes your way, I will be Elohim to you. I will walk beside you. I will stand with you. And I will be there in the power of who I am. Now notice verse 4. He says, I am the Lord your God, Yahweh Elohim. The Lord is one. I am unified, he is saying. It's very fascinating. In the Hebrew language, it is what's called a compound unity. And the idea is multiple that are compounded into one. In other words, what we know as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three together acting in their various capacities, but one in deity, one God. Now, the reason he says the Lord is one is because the ancient peoples worshipped every kind of God under the sun. Most of their gods they attached to forces of nature. So you had the God of wind and the God of the sky and the God of fire and the God of water. You get the idea. And one of the reasons they had all these deities and they felt like that no one deity was sufficient to do everything that was happening in this world or could do it. And this is what Moses is saying. I want you to understand. First of all, there's one God. There's not a whole Parthenon of gods. There's only one. The second thing I want you to understand is this God, this Yahweh Elohim, He is sufficient in Himself to do it all and be it all. You don't have to have a God of fire and a God of water and a God of the sky and a God of the earth like your neighbors you're going to find because Yahweh is sufficient in and of Himself. He is all-powerful in and of Himself. And we are always tempted to bring idols into our lives. To hold up something in our life that we think is more powerful than God. And God says to us, I am one. I am the all-powerful one. Look only to me and serve only me. Now, how do we love the Lord? Verse 5. He says, love the Lord your God. The Hebrew word that's used for love there, first of all, speaks of relationship. God is saying, when I ask you to love me, when I call you to love me, when I challenge you to love me, it's because I want a relationship with you. More than anything else, he's saying, I want a relationship 
with you. The word was used in that day to speak of the love and relationship between family members. It spoke of commitment and affection. Our love for God is fueled by God's love for us. Our love for the Lord grows as we look upon Him and as we experience Him. And it requires a lifetime to do that. But I want you to listen closely to what I'm about to say. When I love the Lord, I don't love the Lord because of stuff. Jesus blessed me. He gave me the car I wanted. He gave me the money I wanted. He gave me the house I wanted. He answered my prayer. He gave me the healing he wanted. I wanted. That's not the basis of my love for him. My ba- the basis of my love for him is not... If I don't obey the Lord, He's going to zap me. He's going to nuke me. And I don't want to get nuked. I don't want to get judged. So I'm going to force myself to try to love the Lord. That's not the idea here. Follow me. When it says here, love the Lord your God, the love for our love for Him begins at the cross. I cannot say that strong enough. Our love for Him begins at the cross. I don't look at stuff I look at Jesus. I don't look at the answers that I want from prayer. I look at Jesus. You see, every time we get mad with the Lord and we get frustrated with God and we say, God's not answering my prayer, the greatest answer to prayer we could ever have asked is the answer of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If I look at you and I say I would give my son to help you out, I have given you the greatest, most closest thing to my heart that I could give to you. And when God looked at us, he said, I want to give you my son. And whatever other answers we feel like we don't get, nothing compares to the gift of his son that he has already given to us. That's where my love for him begins at the cross. I don't look at the stuff and say God loves me. I look at Jesus hanging on the cross, dying on the cross, shedding every ounce of blood in his body for me. And I say I want to love him because of his death on the cross. And then I look at the resurrection. Because he's not still on the cross. When I look at him, I see life I see vitality. I see one who looked the grave in the face, sin in the face, death in the face, and he beat it all and beat it good and beat it into the ground. And he walked out of the grave three days later victorious. And I love a resurrected Jesus Christ. I love him in the power of the resurrection. And I anticipate that in my life, the one that I serve, the one that I love, and the one that I walk with, he's not pale, he ain't given out, he's not been overwhelmed by this world. This world is being overwhelmed by him because he is a resurrected Savior. Oh, but it doesn't stop there because I go from the cross to the empty tomb and then I go to his throne. I go to his throne. Because when he was resurrected, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he went into the heavenlies and sat down on the throne, having accomplished all that God had given him to do. But follow me, when I love him on his throne, when I worship him on his throne, I have to do something. i got to get on my knees to do that. I've got to bow before him to do that. I've got to submit all that I am to him to do that. I start at the cross 
Then I go to the resurrection. And then I go to the throne. And then if i got any time left over after that, then I can start praising Him for everything else that He's done in my life. But I don't skip that to get to the stuff. The stuff doesn't really amount to much to anything after I've gone to the cross and the resurrection and the throne of God. Love the Lord your God. How do you love Him? Verse 5. Love Him, He says, with all your heart. The idea of the Hebrew word there means total dependence on Him. And it wraps up all that we are as a human being. First of all, I love Him with my intellect. In other words, I take my mind and I engage God with my mind. And I wrestle with the Word of God in the truths of the faith. I work it over in my mind. I I struggle with it. I go through it, etc., etc., All of us are going to go through times where we question faith and we question the Bible and and struggle with different things. That's just part of being a human being. But I learned to love him with the struggle and the wrestle of going through it with my mind. And let me say that when you struggle and ask some of those deep questions, does God exist? Does God love me? Et cetera, et cetera. God is big enough to handle our doubt. He does not get frustrated and freak out Because of our doubt, he welcomes it and says, let me engage you and now you engage me and we will work through this together till it becomes yours. Love him with all of your intellect, love him with your emotions, love him with your will. That is your commitment to serve him and let that mature. Love him with all your heart. Next he says, love him with all of your soul. Your soul is the source of life and vitality. How do I love him with my soul? I love him from deep down. I love him from the secret places of my heart and my life. You see, all of us have got some places in us that are the secret places. We don't allow other people in those secret places. We guard those secret places. It's personal. Sometimes there are places that we're ashamed. I love him from the secret places by saying, Lord, you know, this is a place in my life that I don't open up to anybody about, but I'm going to open up to you about it. Lord, I'm I'm going to love you from this place. It may be a place of hurt. It may be a place of regret. It may be something that that we've got inside of us that we're trying to to control and we realize that it's controlling us. Whatever the secret place is, when I invite him into the secret place and ask him to be Lord of the secret place, and I want to say, Jesus, I am willing to love you from that secret place. The depths of who I am. And I'm not going to hold it anymore. Sometimes for us, it's a place of deep disobedience where we just won't let go to him. And we have to say to him, Lord, at that secret place of disobedience, I'm going to give that secret place to you. Again, sometimes it's a place of hurt, but I'm going to love you, Lord, with my soul. And then he says, I'm going to love you with my might. I'm going to love you with the strength that I am. I'm going to love you with the energy that I love you with. I'm not going to give God my leftovers. When we love him with our might... He's the one we we talk about. I have been in the process for about the last year of slowly reading uh, through, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, Chernoff's 
biography he came out with about two years ago on George Washington. And it has been a fascinating read. I'm learning things about Washington that I never knew. But one of the things that he stresses repeatedly in the book is that Washington was a man of incredible physical energy. Prior to the Revolutionary War, he explored what in those days was the wilderness of Ohio, etc. He literally slept out on the ground for days on end. He just exhibited tremendous physical energy and stamina and ability. When the revolution rolled around and he was commanding it, he had to reach into every bit of energy he had in his body to lead the Continental Army, particularly at Valley Forge when everything said give up. He had to reach in that to have the physical energy to continue to lead. But when he became president, his body was beginning to demonstrate and to show the evidences of the revolution and all that he had done up to that point. He began to lose his hearing and he would sit in meetings with people and people would say stuff to him and they would notice that he didn't respond. In many cases, he couldn't hear what they were saying. He went through a period where there was a tumor that came up on his side and he had to have some extremely painful surgery to remove the tumor. And back in those days, there was no anesthesia. And not too long after he'd had the surgery, there was a big issue that came up in Congress and he literally had to pull himself out of the presidential mansion in New York and drag himself into Congress to speak to an issue. And everybody was just shocked when he walked in the room. But as his body aged, he began to really struggle to reach deep inside himself and pull out the energy that he needed. Now, why did Washington do that? Because he loved the country. And he was using every ounce of energy he could come up with to love the country. The idea here of loving the Lord your God with all your might is saying, Jesus, whatever energy you give me, I'm going to use it to love you back. That is the idea of loving him with your might. Do you remember when you were a child and you put together a gift to give to somebody significant? I can guarantee you whatever that gift was, it wouldn't probably have sold for a whole lot at a store, if anything. If most people had looked at it, they would not have been impressed. But that gift was the expression of your love. And hopefully, who you gave it to received it that way. When he says here, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, he's not looking for us to put stuff together that's perfect. He says, give me that gift that is the expression of who you are. Other people may not be too impressed, but I'm impressed. And I will take it and I will receive it. Let's pray. Lord, we want to ask that you would help us to love you like you love us. And to love you back with all our might and our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.